Well, hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Welcome back to the Will and Rob Show, episode 110, 110. Uh, not only is this episode 110, but this is, you are listening to right now, the final episode of the Will and Rob Show. As was mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, Robert has the exciting opportunity to um, take a, a call at a church to intern there and to work with their uh, pastor and, and youth ministry. And so we're excited for him, thankful for his service to ministry of state, but also sad to see him go. And so with that, just a little bit of background information. Um, but as per usual, as always, my name is uh, Will Stockdale. I have a ministry associate with ministry of state here in Washington, DC, that is a seeks to minister to men and women serving in government. And so we love what we get to do. Uh, and as, as, Per usual as well here with Robert Hassler. Robert is a ministry associate, uh, ministry of state as well. Uh, formerly, actually, I think technically you're actually, you have no affiliation with this ministry at the moment. I know I have no strings right now. I, I'm a loose cannon. Who knows what I might say on the last episode? Well, listen closely, Chuck. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you tune in, pay attention here to what is being said. But um, yeah, so we we're back for this episode. Uh, nothing super special planned in terms of uh, no uh, fireworks spectacle. You guys got plenty of that a couple of days ago. Uh, really just wanted to review a little bit of the last few weeks and what's been going on. And then maybe, you know, Robert, if you want to at the end, share a little bit of thoughts or advice that you would have just on cultural, political observations at the moment. Um, uh there's always more and more going on. Mark Tooley uh, from Institute on Religion and Democracy spoke at Commons last night. And oh yeah, how was that? It was great. That's was awesome. Great. Um, I really am thankful for him and very smart and very thoughtful. And but Robert, yeah, we we uh, we've had General Assembly since we last were on here. Um, Roe v. Wade has been overturned since we were last on here. Incredible. Um, with you know the exception of all of the uh fuming on twitter and late night talk shows and celebrity videos there it has been much more tame than i was thinking in the streets um, yeah i was we'll wondering do you, do you oh, okay okay we'll get no, to that no, no, go ahead don't don't i was just gonna ask Robert. i was gonna ask do you think that that's because of the leak do you think that because there was a leak and everyone basically knew that this was coming it like gave a certain amount of time to sort of deflate a lot of the tension you know that, that's a really good question I, I think everybody's wondering that if that's the case i mean um i think it has to have made a difference i think it absolutely has to have made a difference yeah because like when the leak came out it wasn't official and there was quite a bit of an uproar i think i mean i wasn't in the city you were but people i think did go to the supreme court mm -hmm. um and of course we there was all the stories about you know people protesting outside the um the homes of the Supreme Court justices. Uh, so there was some like anger uh, uh, when the leak happened, but because it wasn't official, it wasn't really as maybe uh, violent as it could have been. And so then when the official decision came out, it was more of a feeling of resignation than it was sort of surprise and anger. That's kind of the way that I get a sense of how things maybe, maybe work themselves out. Yeah, I also wonder if there was something of, 
okay, guys, in a month, this thing might get overturned and plan to get angry. And for a month, people sat and thought and thought and thought, and eventually like, uh, maybe I don't want to get, uh, you know, burned. Maybe there was something that allowed people to not be as impulsive the moment it was released and that as they thought about it more and more, maybe it passed. I don't know. We're, we're still early to be seen. There's definitely been plenty of, um, you know, division that has occurred uh, along state lines over this. Yeah. It's also DC in the summertime. So maybe it's just, you know, do uh, I'm, I'm mad about Roe v. Wade being overturned, but do I want to stand out in a hundred degree swamp for hours on end? Yeah. Not that much. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of how I think of it too. Well, let's let's table that and circle back to it. Um, Robert, we, the PCA had General Assembly um, at the end of June, uh, third third week of June and uh, fourth week of June, I guess, technically. Um, and some significant votes were made, some some probably not so memorable votes passed as happens. It was a much less eventful General Assembly than last year in terms of buildup, but want to get your thoughts on w- what votes stick out to you the most. Uh, what was your takeaway? And uh, yeah, did you enjoy it more or less than last year? Um, that's, oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually, I think I enjoyed this general assembly more than I did last year um, because I could follow a little bit better of what was going on. That's kind of uh, one of the, the, things that always comes up when people attend general assembly for the first time, they talk about how incredibly difficult it can be to follow exactly what's going on on the floor because uh, Robert's rules can be a little bit um, dense at times, particularly about how we motion to vote and, you know, making the minority the main or, or, you know, voting to, so we can vote, you know, things like this um, can be really kind of tricky to follow. Um, so I've spent most of last General Assembly in St. Louis just trying to get acclimated to the to the language of how the procedures work. Um, and so then I came this year, I, I felt like I could follow a little bit better about what was happening. I also did a lot more research leading up to this General Assembly about the overtures and the different positions and how they had come out um, and, and the language that was being used as, you know, compromise or consensus or whatever kind of words you want to use. Um, and I think that, that helped as well. So I think I, I enjoyed this one um, more. There was also just way more people there. And so I got to see a lot of people that I know either via Twitter or like sort of like friends of friends. Um, so that was really fun. Just the, the camaraderie of being together with, with people um, from all parts of the world, really. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I just enjoyed that. It, it was fun because I think on my plane there, I was with Christ, the Christ Press Burke guys, and there were a few other PCA folks, but my flight home was all PCA guys coming from General Assembly. I think the entire McLean Press crew was on that plane. Um, some of the Grace DC guys, the Grace Mosaic guys. So it was just kind of fun to, to be you know, a week in our little niche community that is the, the PCA. I mean, what did you think? Did You, you, you went to both um, St. Louis and then this one in Birmingham. How did they, they compare to one another? Uh, well, and I went to Dallas in 2019. Oh, yeah, that's right. You did, well. you were in Dallas. Um, well, I as I said, I thought this one was much less contentious. Uh, there seemed to be much less concern over the overtures that were there, uh, that were voted on. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was probably the largest general assembly we've 
ever had. There were 2,400 elders present. Uh, I did see a woman who was at the top of the stairs uh, who was volunteering. I guess she's one of the, one of the local churches. And I made some corny, cheesy joke, and she didn't laugh, which is fine. And I said, I'm sorry, that's a stupid joke. And she goes, no, it's just it's just been a long week, and there are 2,400 men here who all think they're funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's the real uh, vip of general assembly yeah a real a real hero well you know i think uh votes about leaving nae uh yeah. national association of evangelicals um the repeat of overtures 23 and 37 more or less um that has to do with same-sex attraction and uh, identifying uh well that isn't exactly the language this time self-describing mm-hmm. is now the language self-describing um, I think those are the two biggest ones, uh, voting down the, 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 uh, public statement on political violence, yeah. uh, caused a lot of people to talk. Um, but we can, we can go through those, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. out of those three, is there one that I'm missing that you think is pretty big? Well, I think the other big thing that came out of this general assembly, um, although I don't think necessarily people talked about it as much because it was just such a, uh, consensus, almost unanimous uh, uh, position of the PCA was that we adopted our, our committee's report on um, abuse and sexual assault. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that the PCA has been working hard on. I know that 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 document is over 200 pages long. And I know that, uh, you know, people like Rachel Dellenhalder were, were associated with it. And so I have no doubt that it's, it's a very good document. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that the PCA is taking this issue seriously. Um, I think in light of the SBC and, and what's going on there, I think it is important for the PCA to, to also um, examine itself and make sure that we don't have any practices or policies or, or issues within our own denomination Um that would leave uh, women victimized in our pews uh, in our churches. So I thought that was that was another big thing that happened. But because you know everyone was on board with it and everyone was really happy with the work, I don't think it got as much chatter because the other votes were just much more uh, contentious uh, in in uh, certain ways. I think as it relates maybe to the audience of this podcast who is not necessarily PCA, I think the the two big ones that stick out probably are are the, the decision to leave the NAE. And then our overtures on um, uh, homosexuality, just because uh, those are one, the NAE is our connection with a lot of other denominations. And then uh, I think a lot of people do look to see to the PCA and, and you know, are asking themselves, what are they going to do about this homosexuality question? Um, just because it's an issue that almost every other Protestant denomination has had to deal with. And uh, it's led to splits. It's led to um uh, heretical positions being taken, you know, the sort of the shucking of orthodox views uh, in order to adopt uh, the preferred cultural view. Um, and so I think people are looking to, to the PCA and saying, like, what are these guys going to do? Um, so that, that'll be interesting. Uh, I think the vote to leave the NAE is, is uh, fascinating because I think it, it marks a, uh, maybe a shift in thinking within our denomination. Um, and that's because the vote to leave the NAE has come up again, uh, to the PCA and to the assembly multiple times. I mean, this is something that's been years in the making and has often been voted down by wide margins in some cases uh, uh, for years past. But this year, there was enough momentum to, to get it passed and uh, relatively, you know, with a relatively sizable majority uh, who wanted to leave the NAE. 
Um, and I think what was the most interesting thing was that I think the, the winning argument for leaving the NAE was a, an appeal to our confession about Christian liberty um, and binding and not binding of people's consciences. And so I think it actually reflects, I don't think it necessarily reflects a political shift in the PCA. Like I, some people are looking at this being like, oh, look, they're a bunch of, they're, they're becoming a bunch of sort of hard right-wingers um, angry about politics. I think it has more to do with the fact that the PCA is leaning more into its confessional distinctions. Um, and that seems to be something that people are interested in. Um, what does it mean to be Presbyterian? What, is it, what does it mean to be Westminsterian um, in our theology? And uh, I think it was a very simple argument that was basically like, look, you know, per our confession, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, I think that ended up swaying a lot of people. Um, I also think that uh, the NAE uh, is will, will be fine without us. Um, they're still a large organization. A lot of PCA churches will likely choose to stay in because they can individually. They can choose to stay within the NAE. So I don't think the Presbyterian or the, the PCA um, presence will necessarily completely disappear from the NAE, uh, but it will be somewhat uh, muted just because the denomination as a whole won't be associated. Yeah, I think one of the big questions that people had for the NAE was what influence is there really being had by the PCA on the NAE? What are the actual benefits of being a part of this body? And is there more negative than positive net coming out of this relationship? And I don't, I, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I guess I wasn't super surprised. I don't see it as that consequential um, of an outcome, honestly, uh, for, for most people. I don't think it does much no. for the actual work of pastoral ministry and uh, for tending uh, congregations. And I don't think it necessarily even causes some great divide um, between denominations that may be feared. So... Yeah, we, I was at a thing last night for our church and uh, the pastor gave an update about General Assembly to the, to the congregation. And someone asked, you know, how will this change? How will leaving the NAE, how will it affect our local church? And basically he was like, it won't. And I think that's for most people, that's exactly, you know, they won't feel any change about leaving the NAE. I think what will be interesting going forward, um, and this was brought up on the floor, was that Look, we're already part of NAPARC, which is, you know, it's sort of an association of Presbyterian Reformed churches in North America. Um, but there's other organizations, even international organizations uh, of uh, denominations and churches uh, that are more reformed in their theology and more like minded in some of these things and that we haven't uh, had an opportunity to be a part of. And now we can explore those opportunities um, now that we have sort of, you know, some remaining funds and um, just the, the time and the resources so I'm excited to see what other organizations are out there that the PCA might uh, join. I don't think people were leaving because they wanted to, you know, be sectarian. I think they were leaving um, because the it, it just wasn't a good match anymore. But that doesn't mean we won't be good matches with others. Um, and so I, I, I'm excited to see what what other partnerships might come out of this, uh, particularly in the international space. You know, NAE is very centralized in America. Um, it'd be it'll be cool to see what we can do with our international allies in other countries, particularly as we look at, you know, the persecution of the church in other places and how um, as a uh, uh, association of, of like-minded Christians, we might be able to maybe influence um, certain policies that might protect our brothers and sisters in other places. Um, so that, that'll be cool to see what comes out of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So 
next is this overture about self-describing um, SSA passed by um, much more narrow um, margin. I think it was almost a 70-30, the identity lines in 23 and 37, overtures 23 and 37. And I apologize to listeners if this language is confusing or a little bit of roundabout, we'll, I'll, I'll skip it. Um, basically what was passed this year was probably more close to 55, 45, uh, 60, 40. So much closer, but Robert, I wanna kick this over to you. Um, first of all, it makes me think that, well, go ahead, explain what exactly this was. This, this yeah, was. so there were two overtures that were brought forward as um, substitutes really for 23 and 37 that failed last year. Um, in Leading up to the General Assembly, uh, it became rather clear that 29 was the consensus overture, that that was um, an overture that people on both sides of this issue who seemed to be debating, who were sort of opposed to one another on 23 and 37, overture 29 became the thing that everyone could sort of sign up on. And, and the strengths of 29 in terms of you know gathering a consensus is that it doesn't specifically list any particular sin, especially homosexuality. Um, so it's far more broad uh, in its application. Um, and it really gets at this question of progressive sanctification um, and, and this idea that uh, we can hope and expect the Holy Spirit um, to uh, put to death uh, sinful uh, desire, sinful temptations in this life that we, that that's something that we can, you know, we can hope for um, and, and ought in, we can hope to see uh, in this lifetime. And it's not necessarily, we have to wait until glory, um, which I think has been a sticking point, especially when you think of maybe not necessarily uh, uh, teaching elders within our denomination, but sort of side B revoiced uh, theology as a whole, uh, which is that sort of, you know, homosexuality is an identity that doesn't change. You know, those, those desires don't go away. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, whereas the PCA wanted to make a very strong statement that said, no, um, it, because it's sent, because those desires are sinful, um, and we've been reborn in Christ and we've been filled with the Holy spirit. We can't expect to see those desires put to death. And in fact, the testimony of a lot in our denomination has proven that that is, that is the case. And, and people have stood up and talked about that, about how they had, um, lived part of their life as an open, um, uh, and practicing homosexual, homosexual. And then, um, uh, later in life were saved and now are married and have children. And, um, I think, that was that was something that people wanted to be very clear about, and I and you know, the PCA stood very strongly uh, in favor of that, that that overture, and it did approve, you know, something like eighty five, almost ninety percent of the General Assembly approved that language, um, and so I, I think that's a that's a strong statement about where we are as, as a denomination. Uh, what really uh, was the was the contentious part was Overture fifteen, uh, which specifically uh, sort of serves as a clarification about the broader theology and how it applies specifically to this issue of same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Um, and so it, it bars any person from being ordained who I not only identifies or self-describes as homosexual, homosexual, even self-describes as homosexual while claiming celibacy, um, that, that, would, that person would be barred from ordained office in the PCA. Um, and that was far more contentious. Uh, people thought it was way too harsh it was far too direct. It was way too directed as, at a particular person within our denomination, and so seems somewhat vindictive. Um, but I think you know the arguments for it uh, are that look, 
language is very slippery these days. People are lo always looking for loopholes and looking for ways to poke holes in, in arguments. And so um, while 29 is good and it's, it's a strong statement of theology, 15 sort of says, okay, this is how we apply it, um, particular to this issue. And that was sort of the argument of Palmer Robinson, who I think his speech on the floor made kind of the biggest splash of General Assembly. Will, did you happen to, to catch that? I was out of the room. I missed it, but I, I heard about it. Um, and for those of you who don't know, O. Palmer Robertson is one of those legendary figures in, um, not, I don't think just the PCA world, but in reformed circles in general. He has written uh, on covenant theology. Um, he, I think, either founded or definitely taught at a seminary in Kenya for years and years and years. Um, just a faithful minister. He's probably in his 80s at this point. And um just a strong, uh, well-respected voice in the denomination. And so he came to General Assembly and stood up on the floor, apparently, and, and made some comments about this particular overture. Yeah, he he made a, his basically his argument was, um, we can't avoid this question of addressing particular sins. You know, that, that's one of the big complaints of people against these overtures of, you know, 23 and 37 and then 15 was that it made specific reference to homosexuality and sort of, a, and people really don't like that. And I think one of Palmer Robinson's arguments was that like, look, whether you like it or not, this is the issue facing the church. This is the issue that's going on right now. Um, and so his argument was as a church, we have to draw the line on this thing because that is what's going on right now. Um, and he, he talked a lot about the influence that he's seen uh, that the LGBTQ agenda has had on our culture and, and on, our, on the uh, Christian church. Uh, and um, I think it's probably the reason why the why the overture passed. I think his argument, um, his willing to stand uh, for it, I think probably swayed enough people to actually get it passed. Whether or not it gets to the presbyteries is a huge question mark. Um, and so it's unlikely, I think I can, I think I'll say that. I think it's unlikely that we'll see it, um, get through the presbyteries, but, um, it still, um, was an, an interesting vote in so much as it demonstrated, I think to everyone exactly where the PCA is divided on this question. Um, slight majority, uh, uh you might say are more on the conservative side of this issue. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay that way. Um, and so I think that that was really interesting and probably the moment that um, most people, even if you're not PCA, care about. Yeah, I, I think one thing to say as well, something of a historical note, but also a uh, note for people who are concerned for the peace, purity and prosperity of the church. Um, when you look at the mainline evangelical um, denominations that have that have dwindled and faded uh, it is because they have given up on biblical fidelity and um, it was in 2003 I believe when the Episcopal Church ordained their first openly gay uh, practicing uh, priest and um, when you look at denominations that take that path of abandoning biblical fidelity of embracing the cultural stance on whatever the issue is and I think one of the most visible because it is the loudest, arguably, in our culture right now with having just celebrated Pride Month. Um, there is a, a, 
a, just a high vocality for this movement. Um, when that is embraced, that those denominations end up, interestingly enough, dwindling down to oblivion. Um, the people end up leaving the church. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know what the kind of scandals are. Funny enough, you know, people are a little concerned about conservative churches having scandals. I don't really see much news coverage on the uh, progressive churches and their scandals, but that's kidding. You know, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but I think for those of us who are con- who are paying attention to these issues of how is the church going to respond to, you know, uh, to issues of, of uh, self-described identifying same-sex pastors, I think our concern is, you know, who is the church? What has Christ called her to? And what does it mean to be biblically faithful in this world ministering? And how do we best care for the flock who is there? Um, and, you know, I think additionally as well, um, we want to be loving and caring for our brothers and sisters who we've mentioned this before on the show for our brothers and sisters who are, who, who fight this, who seek to be celibate and faithful, who are SSA. Um, so we want to make sure that we, that we hear that. We also want to make sure that um, we're clear and convincing that these overtures or wherever the PCA stands on, whether these pass or not on, um, you know, holding to a biblical view of sex that, this isn't some kind of like homophobic attack on one particular issue that no, this is part and parcel with a, a overall call to living as Christ has called us to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think these are just some important, important things to lay out and to remember that um, we're, you're seeing Christian uh, how the church is working with being faithful um, in the moment. I mean, theology is never done in a vacuum. And so our doctrine and saints of the church is being done right now in very much a crucible moment. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, comes up in these debates is this question of loving, you know, how are we loving these, these people? Um, and, you know, the arguments, when people debate against the, the overtures, they often say these things are too harsh. They, they, tell people that we don't love them and that we don't want them to be part of our church um, and that we'd rather they go away. And, you know, Palmer Robertson stood up and basically said the opposite and said, um, you know, you can't love somebody. Um, You can't love them uh, as Christ uh, loved people without calling them uh, to the truth of of the Bible. And what, what he basically said was, you know, we have to be able to stand boldly and uh, I think the way he put it was sort of utter the first word of the, of the gospel, which is repent. Um, and uh, if we're not doing that, then we're not really loving people because we're not telling them the truth. And uh, part of, lo- of truly loving people is telling them the truth. Um, and I think, um, yeah, so I, I want to be very clear that when we're, when the PCA is debating this issue and sometimes it gets lost, but there should be no doubt amongst anybody who watches this stuff that the pastors who, even if you're, even the pastors who are voting for these overtures um, love uh, the same sex attracted uh, male or female that's in their, that's in their bodies uh, that are in their pews. Um, They desire for them to come to Christ and they want them to be part of, to be part of Christ's body. Um, I don't think anybody is really motivated. At At least I haven't heard or seen anything that I would, that I would say, Oh, that person's really just animated by homophobia. I think 
at the end of the day, everybody is, is just very concerned with this idea of making sure that we are loving people by telling them the truth um, and see themselves as saying, if we don't tell them the truth, we're not really loving people. And so I think that's, that's a really important part of this argument and part of this debate um, that we, we should never, you know, accuse the other side of their, of, you know, sort of the worst intentions. Um, and I haven't seen anything that suggests that people are, are acting, at, you know, in bad faith on this question. Um, personally, I haven't, I haven't witnessed anything. I think everybody's very concerned about how do we, you know, love people um, and communicate this truth lovingly. Um, if there's just different ideas about how we go about that. Yeah. So um, moving on, cause we're, we want to, uh, we could go forever probably on this, but the next thing, and we won't spend much time on here. There was a, uh, a, a move to make a public statement on condemning political violence that actually didn't pass. And just to be clear, I don't think that's anyone who is in the PCA is saying that it's okay to um, to just randomly pick up, you know, your pitchfork and go downtown and start, you know, tearing apart your local courthouse. No one is saying that that it wasn't uh, it didn't pass not because people were okay with that, but because there was some fogginess and fuzziness around the language of what exactly is being condemned here. Um, you know, I will say, uh, honestly, like, you know, we do live in pretty tumultuous times. I mean, we are walked down by the Supreme Court and it's barricaded. Uh, there's tall fences around and you can't walk up to it. And that's just discouraging because it really shouldn't be that way. And um, we do see more and more violence. And so uh, I think one thing that does need to be um, figured out and you know maybe there's something for another time of just you know what is the church's role in in calling for peace in the midst of a uh, an angry violent culture that we live in because we do live in an angry and violent absolutely culture. i heard a story about someone who a man was shot and killed by a dry, driver who drove by because he was blowing grass in his front yard and accidentally blew someone in this guy's car and he shot and killed him i mean that's a level of anger that is just just frightening. And so there are realities that are, um, that, that are, that are dark, very, very dark. And the church needs to shine light on those. And, and the question is, how do we do that best? Right. Um, what is, what is our role and our voice in calling out darkness, particularly violent darkness? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, look at, you know, look at what happened over the weekend. I mean, there was a horrible shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, uh, during a 4th of July celebration. Um, incredibly sad. Uh, there, I, I saw a story of a woman just walking her um, child down uh, the Upper East Side, randomly gunned down. Uh, no, no explanation about why. And we, this is just happening more and more. I mean, you're exactly right. We, we are living in an incredibly violent culture um, where it feels like almost every other day there is just some horrible act of violence. Um, now, some of those are just, they're not necessarily political, but, you know, at some point uh, when uh, the, the, the tension within our culture, especially on political issues, gets so hot, you, you really have to start wondering what, what's going on here. Um, I think, yeah, when it came to the statement on political violence, one of the things that kept getting brought up and the people who were against it, who kept saying, well, is, does this overture condemn the American Revolution uh, as sort of like a good example? Because we're a reminder to everybody King George III called the American Revolution the Presbyterian Rebellion. Um, so for all of you who are not Presbyterian and celebrated 4th of July the other day, you're welcome. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the, the, opposite, the people who were for the 
political violence uh, statement kept coming up and basically being and basically saying, well, that doesn't that obviously does not fall in with what we're talking about. But it wasn't really obvious, I think, to a lot of people exactly what exactly what kind of political violence we're talking about. Um, And so I actually think I don't think it's dead on arrival. I think people are willing and want to make a statement exactly as you said about this this uh, violent culture that we're living in and and as um, uh, promoters of peace. I think the church does need to to stand um, in a moment like this and, and uh, uh, demonstrate peace and, and to call for peace. I think the thing that I would like to see personally is, you know, we have such in the reform tradition, we have such a rich political theology that has been built out over, over centuries um, with some of the best minds who have ever graced our churches. Um, and it's, it's that, that well is deep and it is rich. I would like to see, just as we've had 200 page committee reports on um, sexual assault and abuse, just as we've had the ad interim report on human sexuality, I would like to see the PCA tackle this question of political theology because our culture is so divided, because we live in such a politically tense time and because people don't seem to really have the tools at their hands. You know, I remember reading a piece by a, uh, a professor at Hillsdale named Adam Carrington, who um, uh, I believe is Presbyterian. And one of his things was that he said was, look, we need to do this work because we don't have it right now. People don't have the resources in front of them. We haven't done political theology in a while. And so I'd like to see the PCA really, you know, get its best minds together and produce a really rich document that that outlines uh, our reform tradition uh, as it relates to politics, what we believe about the civil magistrate, how we apply chapter 23 in our current culture um, and see a much more robust statement. That'd be something that I would be really interested in. Um, and I think would be really well received by the body. Um, I think a sort of quick statement where it's unclear exactly what we're condemning uh, and or who we're condemning, you know, doesn't necessarily help us as much as um, a rich document that people can study and teach and um, draw from in the future. So, yeah, um, we we are in need of. Um, more political theology. I do wonder if there's any hope of having some kind of unified political theology in our uh, climate. I think of just the divide between Christian reconstruction, Kuyperianism versus two kingdoms. I mean, can you ever get those two sides to agree on something I, um, or to create a document that is able to get broad consensus? I have no idea. Um, but uh, I, like you said, chapter 23 is a good place to start. Um, we're, we're moving rapidly here. We're going to try to squeeze a little more in. Um, Roe v. Wade has been overturned the Friday uh, after General Assembly. So General Assembly ended somewhat early in that there was no business that went over into Friday. It just ended on a Thursday. And then that Friday morning, there was a news release that uh, the Supreme Court had, um, had ruled on the Dobbs case and overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, it is now no longer a constitutional right. Um, it has now been kicked back to the states. There was outside the Supreme Court, there was a ton of people gathered. You had people who were uh, um, joyful and exuberant uh, tears of joy, and then people who were grieved and angry and um, very, very worked up over it. Uh, so in one place, of course, you have two diametrically opposed responses to this ruling um, you have public statements from 
places like New York Magazine that they've already done, of course, but we've seen like this magazine can help you get an abortion. So they're doubling down on those efforts. Um, you have uh, pregnancy centers that are being attacked and vandalized, churches as well. Um, you have uh, really what seems like almost an apocalyptic moment of anger from politicians. Uh, that uh, you have Samantha B, the late night commentator, telling her viewers, I don't know how many people even watch that show, but uh, all 400 of them, all 400 people. Um, and hey, I put any one of the Will and Rob listeners up against it. Seriously, uh, seriously, telling people that they need to harass and harangue Samuel Alito wherever he is and take to the streets. Um, so I mean, it has been, and when I say apocalyptic, I really mean like an, a lifting of the veil to a uh, a fury from a number of politicians about what exactly this means. Um, I mean, I you could go on and on and list um, the responses that we've seen, but it's been it's been almost shocking, um, uh, and and seeing viscerally how important this right and what what a lot of people view it as um it, it is it is tantamount to disenfranchisement it seems yeah i just want to say that you know at the uh general assembly the pca did pass an overture um unanimously that petitioned the government to to uh, overturn roe v wade and to uh, end abortion in our land coupled with that with our rejection of the statement against political violence uh, I think that I think that's what did it. I think the government saw those two things together and said, these guys are serious and uh, we better we better make this ruling the right way. So I, that's what that's the truth that I choose to believe. That's my truth. If it's, a, about if it's tied enough correlation, it's got to be causation. Right? <laughs> it was the, the turning down the, the political violence was the ultimate or else statement at the end of our uh, petition. So um, that's the way I choose to look at it. No, I think, um, you know, this, this is not an original thought. I've, I've heard this um, from a couple of different commentators who I think are, are spot on here. Um, at, at the end of the day, uh, uh, the Dobbs case, the overturning Roe v. Wade, it's, it's bigger than the issue of abortion. It's, it's bigger than this issue of uh, individual sovereignty or right. Um, ultimately, it's a referendum on the sexual revolution. Um, the sexual revolution, the abortion has been the pressure release valve for the sexual revolution uh, that promised uh, consequence-free, uh, self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking um, uh, through sex. And the reality is that what, what biology teaches us, what human nature teaches us, is that there is no such thing as consequence-free sex. Um, there's always consequences to sex and a, a very big consequence to sex is pregnancy and, and, and childbearing. Um, uh, it creates responsibility. It creates attachment. Um, it, it creates duty. Um, and part of the sexual revolution was, was getting rid of all that because all of those things were restraints on individual sovereignty. Um, and so abortion has been the thing that has kept the se sexual revolution chugging along for as long as it has. With that gone, if you don't have a constitutional right to it and it's therefore in danger, your entire worldview about who you are and what you can do with this body that you have is completely um, 
uh, uh, jeopardized. And I think that's why we see the massive amount of hyperventilation about this case, because it ultimately changes everything about a certain identity uh, that has been very popularized uh, in our culture. You know, it, it, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that it's not just, you know, sort of uh, uh, third wave feminists who are mad about it. The barstool bros are mad about it because it means that they can't continue to basically use women as objects um, for their own personal sexual pleasure. You know, I think this is a, this is a huge indictment of um, where we are as a culture in particular as it relates to sex. Um, and that's why, that's why you see so much anger. Um, that's why there, there's more that the church can do than just step in and care for uh, babies of women. We absolutely should do that. that that's the must. We, we will, and we will do that. We have been doing that. Um, another thing that the church can do a very good job of is, is teaching what the Bible says about sex, what it's, what, what it's designed for. Um, what happens uh, during it uh, as it relates to our, um, our emotions, our attachments, our relationships. Um, that's something that uh, I do see the church historically, especially in Protestant, conservative, evangelical circles. We tend to be sort of, we don't talk about that issue. It's, it's gross. It's unseemly. Um, the church will have to talk to a culture about what sex is and what God designed it for um, if we have any, any hope. Um, of using this opportunity of Roe v. Wade being overturned um, and, and promoting a, a culture that, that's, that uh, leads to human flourishing. Um, if we don't, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid uh, we're going to very quickly uh, end up in a situation where states that are more liberal leaning are going to have incredibly radical, uh, uh, terrible laws about abortion and, and uh, the sanctity of life. Um, it's not crazy to me after some of the language we heard coming out of our, my own state, Virginia, uh, a couple of years back, um, that some of the more liberal states could have laws um, about uh, uh, post-birth abortion. Um, that, that doesn't seem uh, off the you know, Richter scale to me. Um, uh, I think also, how does that relate? How are those states going to relate to states in the same union uh, where abortion is effectively going to be banned from, uh, um, from conception? Uh, can can states uh, work together in a union uh, with such radical positions about something as fundamental as human life? I don't know. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sort of raise a doomsday alarm here, but um, I am trying to say that this issue, this question of abortion, this question of Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade being overturned, is far bigger than what does the right of privacy entail. It, it has huge implications for how we live as human beings. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how those play out. Yeah. With that, you know, you mentioned all of the hyperventilation that's been going on from a number of different groups. And um, while I am glad that Roe has been overturned, I also want to make sure I'm understanding correctly why people are getting so worked up and concerned. Um, I think for many people, it's not just like, I want to be able to have an abortion when I want. I think there are a lot of people who believe that my value and personhood has been diminished by this. My 100%. opportunities and abilities to succeed in life, to achieve, to have a kick butt career, to uh, climb the corporate ladder, to um, be free to pursue myself how I want to self-actualize in any way that I want has now been diminished. And I think 
in many ways, okay, that's a very different issue here. And what that means is uh, there's a different set of responses that we need to have to those people, which goes much deeper to um, assessing, okay, what does it actually mean to be a human then? And what does it mean to be a human with difference? As in, what does it mean to be a responsible man? What does it mean to be a responsible woman? There are differences here that can no longer be erased um, that I think were much more easily papered over in a rogue world. And now that that is removed, there are much more real questions people have to deal with that, that, that they didn't have to deal with for a long time. And now that, that it is being brought back up, there's a fear and a concern of, oh my gosh, maybe I'm lesser than. And so I want to push back against that and say, no, that is not this at all. You are equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in worth, but there are differences between men and women. And in the same way that we that we would call women to keep this child, we would say men step up to the plate and care for this woman and child as well. So this isn't an either or. What we're looking at here is an entire um, reconfiguration in, in so far as what is their natural law here? What is the, the reality of things? And the church, let's be honest, the church has not done a great service in this area insofar as when we were growing up, there was this um, pushback against like maybe what would be considered by certain young pastors as a prudishness to sex. And so you didn't talk about it in the pulpit. And so now all of a sudden these young hit pastors come along and talk about sex in almost crass ways, 100%. pretty loose and turn it into like a recreational game, which men and women view sex differently. And I totally understand that. But uh, it was, it was chippened in a lot of ways into just this uh, recreational free-for-all. And I think we need to push back against that as well, because I don't think pastors were and Christian teachers were aware of how similar that sounded to right. a sexual revolution world. Yeah, it was the sexual revolution is fine. It just has to be within the concept. It just has to be within the confines of marriage, yeah. which is that's not what at all what 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 the Bible teaches. And yeah, you're exactly right. One hundred percent. So I just th- I just think that as we look at this church and and. You know, the thing I have a conversation with my dad and, and he was, you know, he's glad Rose overturned, but he also is very sober about it because his thought is, have we caught the tiger by the tail? And um, it's not as if he isn't glad it's overturned, but I think an honest assessment it, when we calm down is, okay, now what do we do? Because this is a very different world and you have, you have 50 years of behaviors, you have 50 years of teaching, you have 50 years of norms that have been put in place and now that's gone okay, what do we do? Again, this is not to say um, it's bad, simply that, no, there's, there's, there's real stuff that happens here. And when you undo evil, there's some release valve that happens and, and, and there's some consequences. And so um, everything from, okay, how do we have the resources to care for women and children? And how do we encourage men to stay married or get married? And the other side is, what do we do about these identity questions that view sexual expression as the, as the apex of all human life? And um, both of these things uh, are going to need to be approached and talked about in the church. And it happens, honestly, not just from podcasts or, uh, or from conferences or blogs or articles, but by Christians talking to their pastors and leaders and having good conversations with their coworkers and friends, mm-hmm. um, sharing resources, yes, but Christian... And, our gifts are for each other um, and for the, our neighbor as well. And so we need to be able and prepared to do that. Amen. So um, 
Well, Robert, I know that you have to go because your your wife is departing the house and you have children to take care of. Speaking of fatherly responsibilities here. Exactly. I'm trying to do my part here. That's good. That's good. Well, do you have any final words, Robert? This is speak now or forever hold your peace, which if Lord will, if I get married one day, I want to have that in my wedding because I. (laughs) it's like, hey, if you have any beef with this this union, say it now. Otherwise, be supportive. All right. Yeah, I I only have a couple of seconds here, but I do want to say that this has been a a huge joy to be on this podcast with you, Will. I'm very I'm very proud of the work that we did. Um, I'm proud of the way that we've changed our minds, um, how we have stood by our words um, in other cases. And I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that this has been, uh, uh, not just beneficial, hopefully for our listeners, but beneficial for me, um, as I've thought about how do I communicate my views to people and how they might hear those and and how I can do that lovingly, uh, and in the spirit of humility, um, that we're called to in scripture. So, um, really proud of our work that we've done here. Will, I'm excited to, to see how you carry on. Uh, the MTS podcast, what I know you will do great work with it. I know I'll be an an avid listener um, to everything that you do. And so uh, best of luck uh, as you, as you move forward with, with the new podcast. Um, And uh, yeah, thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for, for tuning in as long as you did. Um, I apologize if, if anything I ever said offended you or hurt you, or you just downright thought was stupid. um, It probably was. Um, and so I appreciate uh, uh, the feedback that we did receive over the, the course of the show too. So, um, and with that, I think I'll sign out. All right. Well, Robert, thankful for you. Love you. Excited for your new journey and chapter, what you're doing. Um, yeah. Thankful for what we did on this podcast. I really enjoyed it. And so thank you all for listening. Follow Robert at RD Hassler. You can follow me at Stockdale Will. Check out ministryestate.org. And we thank you so much for listening to this show. 